Hello and welcome to this, the third in my series of podcasts, Reopening and Rebuilding the Aerospace Sector Following COVID-19. In the first podcast, I discussed the challenges of restoring confidence in the travelling public. The second covered human factors to consider on the sector's return to work, which brings us nicely to this third podcast, which will cover the infrastructure considerations when reopening aerospace manufacturing plants, offices and other places of work. The world is in flux as governments and organisations continue actively to manage the ongoing COVID-19 situation. Generally speaking, we see some semblance of control, not full control, but an overall reduction in transmission rates and the R number, the infection rate. So organisations have been planning and executing a return to work. Shutting down a facility may have been relatively straightforward, or if you have some special processes or facilities that require specific shutdown protocols, it may have been more difficult, time-consuming and not without risk. For those facilities with specific shutdown protocols, bringing things back online might well be a complex, time-consuming and potentially risky operation, an expensive task that will only be undertaken if the management is sure or sufficiently sure that it can invest time and resources and not expect to have to shut it down again. So some risk-based thinking will have been applied with factors involved, including cost, health and safety of personnel and business risks, such as is the market ready to start receiving our output and can this be sustained? But the COVID-19 risks have not gone away. We have seen over the months and weeks that areas with a low or near zero infection rate can suddenly spike with a change or a surge in cases and a government reaction of immediate containment, which may involve reinstigation of local or even national lockdowns. So in deciding to recommence operations, this risk may well have been considered. And even if this is the case, it is not entirely predictable. But sometimes one must move forward, recognising and managing the risks. So you have decided that on balance, now is the time to start operations again. Get the factory gates open, open the offices, get the teams back in and get producing. Aligned to BSI's organisational resilience framework, we have identified four phases pertinent to volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous disruptions, such as the COVID-19 pandemic. The four phases are survive, stabilise, rebuild and resilient. We've been through one and probably two, the stabilised phase. Phase two may have been the shutdown for some or reduced working, or if you are fortunate, business almost as usual. So we're looking here at phase three, rebuild, and with an eye towards phase four, resilient. It would, I suggest, be unwise to leap into rebuilding without looking forward to and planning for the next phase, becoming resilient. Phase three asks, how do we adopt our working practices to recover and start to rebuild operational resilience in the next normal? Note that it says next normal. This is because we are still in flux. So today's normal may not be tomorrow's. 
What are the long-term effects of current changes on our supply chain resilience? What technological innovations should be introduced or maintained to benefit the business? Phase four asks, how do we plan and develop a stronger, more resilient and sustainable organization for the future? Note the words sustainable and resilient. These are key as they are forward looking, not just trying to satisfy today's issues, but anticipating and planning for the future. It continues. How do we assess and make provision to ensure long term team knowledge, management and information resilience? So this is looking at your organization's knowledge, the things that the older hands know and can do, which the younger hands may not. In times of difficulty, it is tempting to let go some of the older members on the assumption that they have pensions or perhaps are less driven, which is often a false assumption. And that with a reduction in headcount, it is better to keep the young blood who will be enthusiastic and driven to advance. But they don't have the knowledge, the experience. So ignore this factor at your peril. But let's step back to the infrastructure side. Your buildings and facilities have been shut down or had reduced operations and most likely reduced maintenance as maintenance personnel will also have been affected by COVID-19. So what needs attention now and what needs to be recommissioned? You have two elements to consider. Number one, what needs to be serviced, maintained or recommissioned? And number two, what do you have to change to adapt to the next normal? We are all focusing on hygiene and prevention of contamination. Your people will certainly be looking very hard at this and how you are managing it. It is a very real concern to them and their families. Your infrastructure was designed or perhaps evolved over time to meet the old extinct needs. What has changed? What has to change due to COVID-19 and the increased need for hygiene and prevention of contamination? So these two factors are linked. They cannot be considered in isolation. When considering what adaptations you may need to make to your facilities, you have to think about a range of new factors such as touch points, door handles, computer buttons, touch screens, banisters, lift or escalator buttons, security keypads, shared equipment, people working together, sharing tools such as torque wrenches or dipping into boxes of consumables. Ablutions and restroom facilities, door handles, flushing buttons, taps or faucets, all are points of hand contact. One-way circuits around facilities. And proximity of personnel, dividers, spaces between people or facing away from each other. For each of these seemingly simple things, there are consequences such as communication, workflows and handovers. I covered a lot of this in my second blog and podcast, which looked at human factors. So this follow on podcast is now inviting you to take those human factors into account when you start thinking about your infrastructure and how it needs to change. What additional resources will you need? Multiple tool sets, for example. And automation wherever possible to eliminate touch, such as automatic opening doors. Areas with controlled environments, such as inspection areas, special process areas and NDT, may need new means of access or means of opening, closing and controlling that access. 
If there are restricted areas in terms of volume, such as the rooms mentioned just now, or offices, how many people can now work in there concurrently? Might you need to expand the areas? Might you need to change the environmental controls, such as increased air exchange rates or fitting high efficiency particulate air filters, HEPA filters? The virus is 0.01 to 0.1 microns, so normal filters and air conditioning will not stop it. And if you fit HEPA or similar filters, how often will they need to be changed and how will you handle them? They may be considered a biohazard. So they may need to be bagged and destroyed in a controlled manner. And what is the air exchange rate? How often is the air in a room replaced? The simple rule for COVID-19 is that outside is best. But if you're inside, the more fresh air, the better. You need to get rid of the stale air. Does your existing system meet the needs for now and the future regarding these? Filtering and air exchange rates. This applies to any ventilation system. At first, it was thought that the virus was not airborne, but recently the thinking has changed and is now thought to be transmitted by air, as well as all the previous means, mainly touch. So there are two lessons here. You need to consider air as a means of transmission. So how will you manage it? And the second, the thinking on the virus changes. So you need to keep up to speed and react as the knowledge and understanding increases and the regulatory or government advice is revised. Then revise your infrastructure and protocols as required. Many facilities are closed controlled environments with air conditioning instead of opening windows due to the need for a constant work environment for product consistency or just for heating cost and environmental conditions. This can apply to offices as well as factories. A way to measure the exchange rate is to measure CO2. We all exhale CO2 and measuring it can indicate whether enough fresh air is getting in. The usual level of CO2 is 400 parts per million. A well-ventilated room will have up to 800 parts per million. Any higher is a sign that more air is needed. Please note that these figures are just indicators for this discussion. Please take professional advice on this. As an example, it was reported in the Wiley Online Library last year that researchers in Taiwan reported the effect of ventilation on a tuberculosis outbreak at Taipei University. Many of the rooms in the school were underventilated and had CO2 levels above 3,000 parts per million. When engineers improved the air circulation and got CO2 levels below 600 parts per million, the outbreak stopped completely. According to the research, the increase in ventilation was responsible for a 97% decrease in transmission. If you have air conditioning, and even if it does meet the need based on our knowledge so far regarding air filtering and exchange rates, there are issues arising from being shut down. You also have water supplies for taps and faucets in the ablutions and restrooms, heating, winter will come eventually, and of course water supplies for production. These may have been sitting unused and unmaintained for several months. So there is a risk of contagion, not just from COVID-19, but from other pathogens, such as Legionnaire's disease or Pontiac fever. So before anyone goes back into work, consider getting these serviced and verified as clean. 
Then confirm and review the air exchange rates and air filtration rates and identify and implement any changes you may need to make before the return to work. Again, take expert advice on this for details. As an example of things that may get overlooked, many years ago, I audited an organization that processed drawn wire. And part of the process was to pass hot wires through a long, open, cooling tank of water, which, as it was being warmed by the wires, was at a constant temperature right in the range for Legionnaire's disease to flourish. I asked if they had ever tested for Legionnaires or other pathogens, and they looked at me blankly because it had never occurred to them. I suggested they look into it, and the next time I went back, they confirmed that it had indeed been a high-risk area, and they now had measures in place to treat the water. So they had been lucky. Other infrastructure then, forklifts and lifting tackle. Have these been maintained during any shutdown? Are the batteries safe? Are the hydraulic fluids clean? Particulates may have come out of suspension and caused problems. Are the levels correct? Is servicing and testing all in date to comply with regulations such as LOLA, the lifting operations and lifting equipment regulations, and PUA, the provision and use of work equipment regulations, and of course overseas equivalents, depending on where you are. How many operators are there? And how will you add cleaning before and after use to the maintenance and operation regime? Steering wheels, for example, if one operator jumps off and another jumps on, touching the wheel could cause transmission of infection. And remember the human factors in your planning for the new rules and procedures. Calibrated tools and equipment, things like torque wrenches, CMMs, verniers, welding equipment, shadow graphs, have they gone out of calibration during the lockdown? Do you have enough to prevent tool sharing and so eliminate or mitigate the risk of contamination? Have they been stored correctly to prevent deterioration? And if you bring in new calibrated items to increase your resource to prevent sharing, make sure they all go in the calibration register. This is easily overlooked and results in problems downstream. New items may not be calibrated or is certified as calibrated on receipt. So you should either add calibration requirements to the purchase order or get them calibrated when you receive them. And make sure the calibration is traceable to national standards, ideally done by an ISO 17025 calibrated uh, certified calibration house. Chemicals, paints, carbon fibre, elastomers and other similar items require precise storage requirements. And those with less precise requirements, such as metals, they still need to have been stored and preserved in accordance with the requirements during the lockdown. Have they been? Freezers, light protection and humidity, have these been maintained during the lockdown? How would you know? Do you have monitoring systems with records that you can check? Have there been power cuts while the building was shut? Did the last person out when you closed down also switch off the power? Being a good employee trying to save money, it has happened. If material stocks have a shelf life, are they still in date? Can you use them as they are? Or do you need to replace them? Or perhaps, if permitted, apply for extensions to shelf life? Make sure you have records of all these to demonstrate continuing compliance and to protect the integrity of your delivered product. 
So you may need to run an inventory and check these and other requirements have been met, then replace as necessary or apply for extensions. If in doubt, replace. It's cheaper and safer than having a problem of, non -deliver uh, of delivery of non-conforming product and potentially affecting flight safety. With special process, you may have things like skill fade, think about welding. We covered human factors in the previous blog. Welding kits should be calibrated. Chemical baths, recommission and reprove the process before beginning production. Make sure the monitoring and measuring equipment, the calibrated instruments for the process are in date and functioning. This is not a definitive list, of course, merely a prompt to help you thinking and to ensure that you address all the elements, all the risks and areas concerns and link these to human factors when you plan and execute the return to work. Consider the organizational resilience model again, phases three and four. In doing this planning, look ahead to the next normal and look beyond the immediate and onto building resilience into your organization. And remember that this includes all aspects, infrastructure, people, so human factors, engagement and knowledge, the market, identification and anticipation of what might be coming up in the next few years. And as a final thought for the return to work, look at your product. Make sure that things haven't changed while you've been shut down or time limits exceeded, such as first article inspections. Have any fares lapsed due to time? Configuration. Have your customers changed the configuration or revised drawings or models? Is the whip that you left on the machine now obsolete? Do you need to revise production plans and routers? And back to the whip, was it protected and preserved during the lockdown? How has your supply chain been affected? You may need to collaborate up and down the chain to get all these right before you push the power on button again. Indeed, I highly recommend extensive collaboration. You all need to work together for mutual support and integration. We should consider supply chain resilience in the next podcast. Until then, I hope you all stay safe and move forward successfully.